From the Fable of the Bees or Private Vices Public Benefits by Bernard Mandeville, edition 1714. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Simon. The Grumbling Hive or Knaves Turned Honest. A spacious hive, well stocked with bees, that lived in luxury and ease, and yet as famed for laws and arms as yielding large and early swarms, was counted the great nursery of sciences and industry. No bees had better government, more fickleness or less content. They were not slaves to tyranny, nor ruled by wild democracy, but kings that could not wrong, because their power was circumscribed by laws. These insects lived like men, and all our actions they performed in small. They did whatever's done in town, and what belongs to sword or gown. To the artful works by nimble slight of minute limbs scaped human sight, yet weave no engines, laborers, ships, castles, arms, artificers, craft, science, shop, or instrument, but they had an equivalent, which, since their language is unknown, must be called as we do our own. As grant that among other things they wanted dice, yet they had kings, and those had gods, from whence we may justly conclude they had some play, unless a regiment be shown of soldiers that make use of none. Vast numbers thronged the fruitful hive, yet those vast numbers made them thrive, millions endeavouring to supply each other's lust and vanity, whilst other millions were employed to see their handiworks destroyed. They furnished half the universe, yet had more work than labourers, some with vast stocks and little pains jumped into business of great gains, and some were damned to scythes and spades, and all those hard laborious trades where willing wretches daily sweat, and wear out strength and limbs to eat whilst others followed mysteries, to which few folks bind prentices that want no stock but that of brass, and may set up without a cross, as sharpers, parasites, pimps, players, pickpockets, coiners, quacks, soothsayers, and all those that, in enmity, with downright working, cunningly, convert to their own use the labour of their good-natured, heedless neighbour. These were called knaves, but bar the name, the grave industrious were the same. All trades and places knew some cheat, no calling was without deceit. The lawyers, of whose art the basis was raising feuds and splitting cases, opposed all registers, that cheats might make more work with dipped estates, as were it unlawful that one's own without a lawsuit should be known. They kept off hearings wilfully to finger the refreshing fee, and to defend a wicked cause, examined and surveyed the laws as burglars, shops, and houses do, to find out where they'd best break through. Physicians valued fame and wealth above the drooping patient's health, or their own skill. The greatest part studied, instead of rules of art, grave, pensive looks and dull behaviour, to gain the apothecary's favour, the praise of midwives, priests, and all, that served at birth or funeral, to bear with ever-talking tribe, and hear my lady's aunt prescribe, with formal smile and kind howdye, to fawn on all the family, and, which of all the greatest curse is, to endure the impertinence of nurses. Among the many priests of Jove, 
hard to draw blessings from above, some few were learned and eloquent, but thousands hot and ignorant. Yet all passed muster that could hide their sloth, lust, avarice, and pride, for which they were as famed as tailors for cabbage or for brandy sailors. Some meagre looked and meanly clad would mystically pray for bread, meaning by that an ample store, yet literally received no more. And whilst these holy drudges starved, the lazy ones for which they served indulged their ease with all the graces of health and plenty in their faces. The soldiers that were forced to fight, if they survived, got honour by it, though some that shunned the bloody fray had limbs shot off that ran away. Some valiant generals fought the foe, others took bribes to let them go. Some ventured always where it was warm, lost now a leg and then an arm. Yet quite disabled and put by, they lived on half their salary, whilst others never came in play, and stayed at home for double pay. Their kings were served, but knavishly cheated by their own ministry, many that for their welfare slaved, robbing the very crown they saved. Pensions were small, and they lived high, yet boasted of their honesty, calling, whenever they strained their right, the slippery trick a percocite. And when folks understood their cant, they changed that for emolument, unwilling to be short or plain in anything concerning gain. For there was not a bee but would get more, I won't say, than he should, but then he dared to let them know that paid for it, as your gamesters do that, though at fair play, never will own before the losers what they've won. But who can all their frauds repeat? The very stuff which in the street they sold for dirt to enrich the ground was often by the buyers found sophisticated with a quarter of good-for-nothing stones and mortar though flail had little cause to mutter, who sold the other sold for butter. Justice herself, famed for fair dealing, by blindness had not lost her feeling. Her left hand, which the scales should hold, had often drops them, bribed with gold. And though she seemed impartial where punishment was corporal, pretended to a regular course in murder and all crimes of force, though some, first pilloried for cheating, were hanged in hemp of their own beating. Yet it was thought the sword she bore checked but the desperate and the poor, that, urged by mere necessity, were tied up to the wretched tree for crimes which not deserve that fate but to secure the rich and great. Thus every part was full of vice, yet the whole mass a paradise. Flattered in peace and feared in wars, they were the esteem of foreigners, and lavish of their wealth and lives the balance of all other hives. Such were the blessings of that state, their crimes conspired to make him great, and virtue, who from politics had learned a thousand cunning tricks, was, by their happy influence, made friends with vice, and ever since the worst of all the multitude did something for the common good. This was the statescraft that maintained the whole of which each part complained. This, as in music harmony, made jarrings in the main agree. Parties directly opposite assist each other as twere for spite and temperance with sobriety served drunkenness and gluttony. The root of evil avarice, that damned ill-natured baneful vice, was slave to prodigality, that noble sin, whilst luxury employed a million of the poor, and odious pride a million more. Envy itself and vanity were ministers of industry, their darling folly fickleness in diet, furniture, and dress. That strange ridiculous vice was made the very wheel that turned the trade, 
their laws and clothes were equally objects of mutability for what was well done for a time in half a year became a crime yet whilst they altered thus their laws still finding and correcting flaws they mended by inconstancy faults which no prudence could foresee thus vice nursed ingenuity which joined with time and industry had carried life's conveniences its real pleasures comforts ease to such a height the very poor lived better than the rich before and nothing could be added more how vain is mortal happiness had they but known the bounds of bliss and that perfection here below is more than gods can well bestow the grumbling brutes had been content with ministers and government but they at every ill success like creatures lost without redress cursed politicians armies fleets whilst every one cried damn the cheats and would though conscious of his own in others barbarously bear none one that had got a princely stall by cheating master king and poor dared cry aloud the land must sink for all its fraud and whom do you think the sermonizing rascal chit a glover that sold lamb for kit the least thing was not done amiss or crossed the public business but all the rogues cried brazenly good gods had we but honesty mercury smiled at the impudence and others called it want of sense always to rail at what they loved but jove with indignation moved at last in anger swore he'd rid the bawling hive of fraud and did the very moment it departs and honesty fills all their hearts there shows em like the instructive tree those crimes which they're ashamed to see which now in silence they confess by blushing at their ugliness like children that would hide their faults and by their colour own their thoughts imagining when they're looked upon that others see what they have done but o oh, ye gods what consternation how vast and sudden was the alteration in half an hour the nation round meat fell a penny in the pound the mask hypocrisies flung down from the great statesman to the clown and some in borrowed looks well known appeared like strangers in their own the bar was silent from that day for now the willing debtors pay even what's by creditors forgot who quitted them that had it not those that were in the wrong stood mute and drops the patched vexatious suit on which since nothing less can thrive than lawyers in an honest hive all except those that got enough with inkhorns by their sides trooped off justice hanged some set others free and after gold delivery her presence being no more required with all her train and pomp retired first marched some smith with locks and grades fetters and doors with iron plates next gaolers turnkeys and assistants before the goddess at some distance her chief and faithful minister squire catch and law's great finisher bore not the imaginary sword but his own tools an axe and cord then on a cloud the hoot-winged fair justice herself was pushed by air about her chariot and behind were sergeants bums of every kind tipstaffs and all those officers that squeeze a living out of tears those physic lived whilst folks were ill none would prescribe but bees of skill which through the hive dispersed so wide that none of them had need to write waved vain disputes and strove to free the patients of their misery left drugs in cheating countries grown and used the product of their own knowing the gods sent no disease to nations without remedies their clergy roused from laziness laid not their charge on journey bees 
but served themselves, exempt from vice, the gods with prayer and sacrifice. All those that were unfit or knew their service might be spared withdrew. Nor was their business for so many, if the honest stand the need of any. Few only with the high priest stayed, to whom the rest obedience paid. Himself, employed in holy cares, resigned to others' state affairs. He chased no starveling from his door, nor pinched the wages of the poor. But at his house the hungry's fed, the hireling finds unmeasured bread, the needy traveller board and bed. Among the king's great ministers, and all the inferior officers, the change was great, for frugally they now lived on their salary. That a poor bee should ten times come to ask his due a trifling sum, and by some well-hired clerk be made to give a crown or never be paid, would now be called a downright cheat, though formerly a perquisite. All places, managed first by three, who watched each other's knavery, and often for a fellow-feeling promoted one another's stealing, are happily supplied by one, by which some thousands more are gone. No honour now could be content to live and owe for what was spent. Liveries and broker's shops are hung, they part with coaches for a song, sell stately horses by whole sets, and country houses to pay debts. Vain cost is shunned as much as fraud, they have no forces kept abroad, laugh at the esteem of foreigners, and empty glory got by wars. They fight but for their country's sake, when right or liberty's at stake. Now mind the glorious hive, and see how honesty and trade agree. The show is gone, it thins apace, and looks with quite another face, for t'was not only that they went, by whom vast sums were yearly spent, but multitudes that lived on them were daily forced to do the same. In vain to other trades they'd fly, all were overstocked accordingly. The price of land and houses falls, Miraculous palaces whose walls, like those of Thebes, were raised by play, are to be let, whilst the once gay, well-seated household gods would be more pleased to expire in flames than see the mean inscription on the door smile at the lofty ones they bore. The building trade is quite destroyed, artificers are not employed, no limner for his art is famed, stone-cutters, carvers are not named. Those that remain, grown temperate, strive, not how to spend, but how to live, and when they paid their tavern score, resolved to enter it no more. No vintners jilt in all the hive could wear now cloth of gold and thrive, nor torquil such vast sums advance for burgundy and ortolans. The courtier's gone, that with his miss, supped at his house on Christmas peas, spending as much in two hours' stay as keeps a troop of horse a day. The haughty Chloe, to live great, had made her husband rob the state, but now she sells her furniture, which the Indies had been ransacked for, contracts the expensive bill of fare, and wears her strong suit a whole year. The slight and fickle age is past, and clothes as well as fashions last. Weavers that joined rich silk with plate, and all the trades subordinate, are gone. Still peace and plenty reign, and everything is cheap, though plain. Kind nature, free from gardener's force, allows all fruits in her own course, but rarities cannot be had, where pains to get em are not paid. As pride and luxury decrease, so by degrees they leave the seas, not merchants now, but companies remove whole manufactories, all arts and crafts neglected lie, content the bane of industry, makes them admire their homely store, and neither seek nor covet more. So few in the vast hive remain, 
the hundredth path they can't maintain against the insults of numerous foes whom yet they valiantly oppose till some well-fenced retreat is found and here they die or stand their ground no hireling in their armies known but bravely fighting for their own their courage and integrity at last were crowned with victory they triumphed not without their cost for many thousand bees were lost hardened with toils and exercise they counted ease itself a vice which so improved their temperance that to avoid extravagance they flew into a hollow tree blessed with content and honesty the moral then leave complaints fools only strive to make a great and honest hive to enjoy the world's conveniencies be famed in war yet live in ease without great vices is a vain utopia seated in the brain fraud luxury and pride must live whilst we the benefits receive hunger's a dreadful plague no doubt yet who digests or thrives without do we not owe the growth of wine to the dry crooked shabby vine which whilst its shoots neglected stood choked other plants and ran to wood but blessed us with its noble fruit as soon as it was tied and cut so vice is beneficial found when it's by justice lopped and bound nay where the people would be great as necessary to the state as hunger is to make em eat bare virtue can't make nations live in splendour they that would revive a golden age must be as free for acorns as for honesty an inquiry into the origin of moral virtue the introduction one of the greatest reasons why so few people understand themselves is that most writers are always teaching men what they should be and hardly ever trouble heads with telling them what they really are as for my part without any compliment to the courteous reader or myself i believe men besides skin flesh bones etc that are obvious to the eye to be a compound of various passions that all of them as they are provoked and come uppermost govern him by turns whether he will or no to show that these qualifications which we all pretend to be ashamed of are the great support of a flourishing society has been the subject of the foregoing poem but there being some passages in it seemingly paradoxical i have in the preface promised some explanatory remarks on it which to render more useful i have thought fit to inquire how men no better qualified might yet by his own imperfections be taught to distinguish between virtue and vice and here i must desire the reader once for all to take notice that when i say men i mean neither jews nor christians but mere men in the state of nature and ignorance of the true deity all untaught animals are only solicitous of pleasing themselves and naturally follow the bent of their own inclinations without considering the good or harm that from their being pleased will accrue to others this is the reason that in a wild state of nature those creatures are fittest to live peaceably together in great numbers that discovered the least of understanding and have the fewest appetites to gratify and consequently no species of animals is without the curb of government less capable of agreeing long together in multitudes than that of men yet such are his qualities whether good or bad i shall not determine that no creature besides himself can ever be made sociable but being an extraordinary selfish and headstrong as well as cunning animal however he may be subdued by superior strength it is impossible by force alone to make him tractable and receive the improvements he is capable of 
the chief thing therefore which lawgivers and other wise men that have laboured for the establishment of society have endeavoured has been to make the people they were to govern believe that it was more beneficial for everybody to conquer than indulge his appetites and much better to mind the public than what seemed his private interest as this has always been a very difficult task so no wit or eloquence has been left untried to compass it and the moralists and philosophers of all ages employed their utmost skill to prove the truth of so useful an assertion but whether mankind would have ever believed it or not it is not likely that anybody could have persuaded them to disapprove of their natural inclinations or prefer the good of others to their own if at the same time he had not showed them an equivalent to be enjoyed as a reward for the violence which by so doing they of necessity must commit upon themselves those that have undertaken to civilize mankind were not ignorant of this but being unable to give so many real rewards as would satisfy all persons for every individual action they were forced to contrive an imaginary one that as a general equivalent for the trouble of self-denial should serve on all occasions and without costing anything either to themselves or others be yet a most acceptable recompense to the receivers they thoroughly examined all the strength and frailties of our nature and observing that none were either so savage as not to be charmed with praise or so despicable as patiently to bear contempt justly concluded that flattery must be the most powerful argument that could be used to human creatures making use of this bewitching engine they extolled the excellency of our nature above other animals and setting forth with unbounded praises the wonders of our sagacity and vastness of understanding bestowed a thousand encomiums on the rationality of our souls by the help of which we were capable of performing the most noble achievements having by this artful way of flattery insinuated themselves into the hearts of men they began to instruct them in the notions of honour and shame representing the one as the worst of all evils and the other as the highest good to which mortals could aspire which being done they laid before them how unbecoming it was the dignity of such sublime creatures to be solicitous about gratifying those appetites which they had in common with brutes and at the same time unmindful of those higher qualities that gave them the pre-eminence over all visible beings they indeed confessed that those impulses of nature were very pressing that it was troublesome to resist and very difficult wholly to subdue them but this they only used as an argument to demonstrate how glorious the conquest of them was on the one hand and how scandalous on the other not to attempt it to introduce moreover an emulation amongst men they divided the whole species in two classes vastly differing from one another the one consisted of abject low-minded people that always hunting after immediate enjoyment were wholly incapable of self-denial and without regard to the good of others had no higher aim than their private advantage such as being enslaved by voluptuousness yielded without resistance to every gross desire and made no use of their rational faculties but to heighten their sensual pleasures these vile grovelling wretches they said were the dross of their kind and having only the shape of men differed from brutes in nothing but their outward figure but the other class was made up of lofty high-spirited creatures that free from sordid selfishness esteemed the improvements of the mind to be their fairest possessions and setting a true value upon themselves took no delight but in embellishing that part in which their excellency consisted such as despising whatever they had in common with irrational creatures opposed by the help of reason their most violent inclinations 
and making a continual war with themselves to promote the peace of others aimed at no less than the public welfare and the conquest of their own passions fortior est qui quam qui fortissima vincit mania these they called the true representatives of their sublime species exceeding in worth the first class by more degrees than that itself was superior to the beasts of the field as in all animals that are not too imperfect to discover pride we find that the finest and such as are the most beautiful and valuable of their kind have generally the greatest share of it so in man the most perfect of animals it is so inseparable from his very essence how cunningly soever some may learn to hide or disguise it that without it the compound he is made of would want one of the chiefest ingredients which if we consider it is hardly to be doubted but lessons and remonstrances so skilfully adapted to the good opinion man has of himself as those i have mentioned must if scattered amongst a multitude not only gain the assent of most of them as to the speculative part but likewise induce several especially the fiercest most resolute and best among them to endure a thousand inconveniences and undergo as many hardships that they may have the pleasure of counting themselves men of the second class and consequently appropriating to themselves all the excellencies they have heard of it from what has been said we ought to expect in the first place that the heroes who took such extraordinary pains to master some of their natural appetites and preferred the good of others to any visible interest of their own would not recede an inch from the fine notions they had received concerning the dignity of rational creatures and having ever the authority of the government on their side with all imaginable vigour assert the esteem that was due to those of the second class as well as their superiority over the rest of their kind in the second that those who wanted a sufficient stock of either pride or resolution to buoy them up in mortifying of what was dearest to them followed the central dictates of nature would yet be ashamed of confessing themselves to be those despicable wretches that belonged to the inferior class and were generally reckoned to be so little removed from brutes and that therefore in their own defence they would say as others did and hiding their own imperfections as well as they could cry up self-denial and public-spiritedness as much as any for it is highly probable that some of them convinced by the real proofs of fortitude and self-conquest they had seen would admire in others what they found wanting in themselves others be afraid of the resolution and prowess of those of the second class and that all of them were kept in awe by the power of their rulers wherefore it is reasonable to think that none of them whatever they thought in themselves would dare openly contradict what by everybody else was thought criminal to doubt of this was or at least might have been the manner after which savage man was broke from whence it is evident that the first rudiments of morality broached by skilful politicians to render men useful to each other as well as tractable were chiefly contrived that the ambitious might reap the more benefit from and govern vast numbers of them with the greater ease and security this foundation of politics being once laid it is impossible that men should long remain uncivilized for even those who only strove to gratify their appetites being continually crossed by others of the same stamp could not but observe that whenever they checked their inclinations or but followed them with more circumspection they avoided a world of troubles and often escaped many of the calamities that generally attended the too eager pursuit after pleasure 
first they received as well as others the benefit of those actions that were done for the good of the whole society and consequently could not forbear wishing well to those of the superior class that performed them secondly the more intent they were in seeking their own advantage without regard to others the more they were hourly convinced that none stood so much in their way as those that were most like themselves it being the interest then of the very worst of them more than any to preach up public spiritedness that they might reap the fruits of the labour and self-denial of others and at the same time indulge their own appetites with less disturbance they agreed with the rest to call everything which without regard to the public man should commit to gratify any of his appetites vice if in that action there could be observed the least prospect that it might either be injurious to any of the society or ever render himself less serviceable to others and to give the name of virtue to every performance by which man contrary to the impulse of nature should endeavour the benefit of others or the conquest of his own passions out of a rational ambition of being good it shall be objected that no society was ever anyways civilized before the major part had agreed upon some worship or other of an overruling power and consequently that the notions of good and evil and the distinction between virtue and vice were never the contrivance of politicians but the pure effect of religion before i answer this objection i must repeat what i have said already that in this inquiry into the origin of moral virtue i speak neither of jews or christians but men in a state of nature and ignorance of the true deity and then i affirm that the idolatrous superstitions of all other nations and the pitiful notions they had of the supreme being were incapable of exciting man to virtue and good for nothing but to awe and amuse a rude and unthinking multitude it is evident from history that in all considerable societies how stupid or ridiculous soever people's received notions have been as to the deities they worshipped human nature has ever exerted itself in all its branches and that there is no earthly wisdom or moral virtue but at one time or other men have excelled in it in all monarchies and commonwealths that for riches and power have been anyways remarkable the egyptians not satisfied with having deified all the ugly monsters they could think on were so silly as to adore the onions of their own sowing yet at the same time their country was the most famous nursery of arts and sciences in the world and themselves more eminently skilled in the deepest mysteries of nature than any nation has been since no states or kingdoms under heaven have yielded more or greater patterns in all sorts of moral virtues than the greek and roman empires more especially the latter and yet how loose absurd and ridiculous were their sentiments as to sacred matters for without reflecting on the extravagant number of their deities if we only consider the infamous stories they fathered upon them it is not to be denied but that their religion far from teaching men the conquest of their passions and the way to virtue seemed rather contrived to justify their appetites and encourage their vices but if we would know what made them excel in fortitude courage and magnanimity we must cast our eyes on the pomp of their triumphs the magnificence of their monuments and arches their trophies statues and inscriptions the variety of their military crowns their honours decreed to the dead public encomiums on the living and other imaginary rewards they bestowed on men of merit and we shall find that what carried so many of them to the utmost pitch of self-denial was nothing but their policy in making use of the most effectual means that human pride could be flattered with 
It is visible, then, that it was not any heathen religion or other idolatrous superstition that first put men upon crossing his appetites and subduing his dearest inclinations, but the skilful management of wary politicians, and the nearer we search into human nature, the more we shall be convinced that the moral virtues are the political offspring which flattery begot upon pride. There is no man of what capacity or penetration soever that is wholly proof against the witchcraft of flattery, if artfully performed, and suited to his abilities. Children and fools will swallow personal praise, but those that are more cunning must be managed with greater circumspection, and the more general the flattery is, the less it is suspected by those it is levelled at. What you say in commendation of a whole town is received with pleasure by all the inhabitants. Speak in commendation of letters in general, and every man of learning will think himself in particular obliged to you. You may safely praise the employment a man is of, or the country he was born in, because you give him an opportunity of screening the joy he feels upon his own account, under the esteem which he pretends to have for others. It is common among cunning men that understand the power which flattery has upon pride, when they are afraid they shall be imposed upon to enlarge, though much against their conscience, upon the honour, fair dealing, and integrity of the family, country, or sometimes the profession of him they suspect, because they know that men often will change their resolution and act against their inclination, that they may have the pleasure of continuing to appear in the opinion of some what they are conscious not to be in reality. Thus sagacious moralists draw men like angels, in hopes that the pride at least of some will put them upon copying after the beautiful originals which they are represented to be. When the incomparable Sir Richard Steele, in the usual elegance of his easy style, dwells on the praises of his sublime species, and with all the embellishments of rhetoric, sets forth the excellency of human nature, it is impossible not to be charmed with his happy turns of thought and the politeness of his expressions. But though I have been often moved by the force of his eloquence, and ready to swallow the ingenious sophistry with pleasure, yet I could never be so serious but reflecting on his artful encomiums, I thought on the tricks made use of by the women that would teach children to be mannerly. When an awkward girl, before she can either speak or go, begins after many entreaties to make the first rude essays of curtsying, the nurse falls in an ecstasy of praise. There's a delicate curtsy. Oh, fine, miss! There's a pretty lady. Mamma, miss can make a better curtsy than her sister Molly. The same is echoed over by the maids, whilst Mamma almost hugs the child to pieces. Only Miss Molly, who, being four years older, knows how to make a very handsome curtsy, wonders at the perverseness of their judgment, and, swelling with indignation, is ready to cry at the injustice that is done her till being whispered in the ear that is only to please the baby, and that she is a woman. She grows proud at being let into the secret, and rejoicing at the superiority of her understanding, repeats what has been said with large additions, and insults over the weakness of her sister, whom all this while she fancies to be the only bubble among them. These extravagant praises would by any one, above the capacity of an infant, be called fulsome flatteries, and, if you will, abominable lies. Yet experience teaches us that by the help of such gross encomiums, young misses will be brought to make pretty curtsies, and behave themselves womanly much sooner and with less trouble than they would without them. Tis the same with boys, whom they'll strive to persuade that all fine gentlemen do as they are bid, and that none but beggar boys are rude or dirty their clothes. 
nay, as soon as the wild brat with his untaught fist begins to fumble for his hat, the mother, to make him pull it off, tells him before he is two years old that he is a man, and if he repeats that action when she desires him, he is presently a captain, a lord mayor, a king, or something higher, if she can think of it, till, egged on by the force of praise, the little urchin endeavours to imitate man as well as he can, and strains all his faculties to appear what his shallow noddle imagines he is believed to be. The meanest wretch puts an inestimable value upon himself, and the highest wish of the ambitious man is to have all the world as to that particular of his opinion, so that the most insatiable thirst after fame that ever hero was inspired with was never more than an ungovernable greediness to engross the esteem and admiration of others in future ages as well as his own, and, what mortification soever this truth might be to the second thoughts of an Alexander or a Caesar, the great recompense in view, for which the most exalted minds have with so much alacrity sacrificed their quiet, health, sensual pleasures, and every inch of themselves, has never been anything else but the breath of man, the aerial coin of praise. Who can forbear laughing when he thinks on all the great men that have been so serious on the subject of that Macedonian madman, his capacious soul, that mighty heart, in one corner of which, according to Lorenzo Gretchen, the world was so commodiously lodged that in the whole there was room for six more. Who can forbear laughing, I say, when he compares the fine things that have been said of Alexander, with the end he proposed to himself from his vast exploits, to be proved from his own mouth, when the vast pains he took to pass the Hydaspus forced him to cry out, O oh, you Athenians, could you believe what dangers I exposed myself to, to be praised by you? To define, then, the reward of glory in the amplest manner, the most that can be said of it is that it consists in a superlative felicity which a man, who is conscious of having performed a noble action, enjoys in self-love, whilst he is thinking on the applause he expects of others. But here I shall be told that besides the noisy toils of war and public bustle of the ambitious, there are noble and generous actions that are performed in silence. That virtue being its own reward, those who are really good have a satisfaction in their consciousness of being so, which is all the recompense they expect from the most worthy performances. That among the heathens there have been men who, when they did good to others, were so far from coveting thanks and applause that they took all imaginable care to be for ever concealed from those on whom they bestowed their benefits, and consequently that pride has no hand in spurring men on to the highest pitch of self-denial. In answer to this, I say that it is impossible to judge of a man's performance unless we are thoroughly acquainted with the principle and motive from which he acts. Pity, though it is the most gentle and the least mischievous of all our passions, is yet as much a frailty of our nature as anger, pride, or fear. The weakest minds have generally the greatest share of it, for which reason none are more compassionate than women and children. It must be owned that of all our weaknesses it is the most amiable, and bears the greatest resemblance to virtue. Nay, without a considerable mixture of it, the society could hardly subsist. But as it is an impulse of nature, that consults neither the public interest nor our own reason, it may produce evil as well as good. It has helped to destroy the honour of virgins, and corrupted the integrity of judges, and whoever acts from it as a principle, 
what good soever he may bring to the society, has nothing to boast of but that he has indulged a passion that has happened to be beneficial to the public. There is no merit in saving an innocent babe ready to drop into the fire. The action is neither good nor bad, and what benefit soever the infant received we only obliged ourselves, for to have seen it fall and not strove to hinder it would have caused a pain which self-preservation compelled us to prevent." nor has a rich prodigal that happens to be of a commiserating temper and loves to gratify his passions greater virtue to boast of when he relieves an object of compassion with what to himself is a trifle but such men as without complying with any weakness of their own can part from what they value themselves and from no other motive but their love to goodness perform a worthy action in silence such men i confess have acquired more refined notions of virtue than those I have hitherto spoke of. Yet even in these, with which the world has yet never swarmed, we may discover no small symptoms of pride, and the humblest man alive must confess that the reward of a virtuous action, which is the satisfaction that ensues upon it, consists in a certain pleasure he procures to himself by contemplating on his own worth. Which pleasure, together with the occasion of it, are as certain signs of pride as looking pale and trembling at any imminent danger are the symptoms of fear. If the too scrupulous reader should at first view condemn these notions concerning the origin of moral virtue, and think them perhaps offensive to Christianity, I hope he'll forbear his censures when he shall consider that nothing can render the unsearchable depth of the divine wisdom more conspicuous than that man, whom providence had designed for society, should not only by his own frailties and imperfections be led into the road to temporal happiness, but likewise receive, from a seeming necessity of natural causes, a tincture of that knowledge in which he was afterwards to be made perfect by the true religion to his eternal welfare. End of From the Fable of the Bees or Private Vices, Public Benefits from 1714 by Bernard Mandeville